Hello and welcome to Sellers Lounge. I'm your host, Pritha Dubey, an international sales trainer and founder of Success Vitamin, where we help organizations create sales superstars by combining the science of selling and the emotional intelligence. On this podcast, I sit across global sales experts to find answers to some of the most pressing revenue growth questions that are on the minds of business heads, CROs, and the startup founders today. We are spotting the top trends and tools that are disrupting the landscape of sales. Ready to graduate from Sales 101 to Sales 1001? Stick around because class is officially in session. Jump right in. All right, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you who have just tuned in and who are uh, listening to this particular episode of our podcast. If you're heading for that important client meeting, this podcast could just be the piece you would want to listen. And stay tuned as we continue to discuss about you and how you can achieve success in your sales game. Who we have today is a very dear friend. And we just shared an immense amount of laughter just before we started the recording. And uh, there's so much in common between him and I. And I would like all of you to kind of enjoy this entire discussion because Frederick Kamish, who is joining us right now from Sweden, although he kind of dabbles between uh, Sweden and uh, Switzerland, he's the coach to private bankers. And he's going to talk a lot more about what he does. But he's an amazing person with a lot of wisdom. And I wish that this episode uh, we could have probably in two, three parts so that we could have, we could get all his anecdotes and stories and entire wisdom. And I can bring that to all of you. Fred, welcome to this episode and welcome to our podcast. I'm so happy that uh, you are joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And Fred, a quick introduction for our audience, please. What do you do? And please talk about the entire work and what made you become the coach to private bankers. Yeah, with pleasure. So I work with private bankers, private wealth managers. So these are bankers who work with high net worth individuals, usually people with uh, large amounts of money. And they've often sold companies or inherited the money or made the money. Uh, I guess that there are a few crypto geniuses somehow, but it's generally people who've made the money, who want to make sure they maintain the money. And so they work with uh, with bankers. And what we notice is many bankers are very good technically. They usually know significantly more technically than the clients do. However, the bottleneck to communication is the communication, the psychology, the framing, reducing confusion, helping people understand better complex uh, issues and especially just avoid the confusion, sabotaging their their success, their happiness and their enjoyment of their hard-earned wealth or their inherited wealth. And so I, I work with bankers. I help them communicate better with the clients. I help them get more clarity about the kind of book of clients, so business model they are building, how to move from identifying prospects to getting clients to qualifying or disqualifying for the right reason. So building a system to go from just having names to having sustainable business, and then making sure that misunderstandings don't come and sabotage their success. And we see that quite often 
success is actually just sabotaged by misunderstandings. And I think that's a shame. It's a shame for the bank, of course, but it's especially a shame for the clients who might end up being more frustrated or confused or worried or anxious than they need to be. So in in short, that's what I do with uh, with the bankers. And I'm glad you brought up the framing right at the right at the time the first because you know I'm a big fan of your framing. And I had that question. I've written that question down. That when Frederick comes for this uh, podcast, I am going to now get a masterclass from him on the entire framing of a communication. So many times, and because you work with the bankers, but this podcast, this episode could be heard by many other salespeople as well. And framing is. One such beautiful concept that I think every human being whosoever and every professional who are have to talk with another human being and they want to get their job done, it's something as a skill each and every person should be learning. So please just elaborate a little more about what is a framing of a communication. I mean, you can give some examples. What is the meaning of it? I know you shared an example some time back, but you can share some other example with me. <laughs> Yeah, with pleasure. So framing to me is simply, uh, another way of putting it, is trying to understand, see things from somebody else's point of view and understand that one point of view does not explain 100% of everything. So I like to liken it to if you're inside a house and you look out a window, you see a tree and you see a mountain. But if you look out the other uh, window on the other side of the house, you will see the sea and you'll see a beach. So if you only have one frame, you will believe that outside you, there are only trees and mountains and there is nothing else. So if someone else says, but I, you know, I see a ship, you go, that's ridiculous. There are no ships on mountains. You must be lying. That's completely stupid. And the other person might say, well, I clearly see a ship. You're calling me a liar. You say there's a tree, but there are no trees growing in the ocean. You're a complete idiot. So one way of going through life is to say that everyone who doesn't agree with us 100% of the time is an idiot. And that's what most people do. Another way of seeing it is to think, well, there might be another point of view. Maybe I'm not seeing 100% of everything. Maybe I can begin to try to understand what they're doing. And then we can work from there. So maybe the person looking out and looking at the, the mountain and the tree is actually looking at a painting. In which case, well, it's not actually a window to the world. It's just a painting. So then we can start, I can start adjusting from their starting point. As we know, if we call someone an idiot, Usually people don't respond and say, you know what, you're right, I've changed my mind. Usually when people lead with insults, it shuts down conversations, communications. So i give you one example of, of framing that's a real example from years ago. I had a colleague who had moved to Switzerland and he had a conversation with his wife and his wife said, you know, Swiss people are nice, but they're a little bit cold. And his response was, what? You don't like it here? Do you want us to move back to our country of origin? And she said, no, I don't want us to move back. So he said, in that case, stop complaining. And of course, the conversation didn't go that well. So I reframed this to him. And then he had a better conversation. So my framing was, so his, so rather, his framing was, if she complains, she's unhappy. If she's not unhappy, she should stop complaining. So my framing was to say, what I hear is, If you rate Swiss people their openness and warmth from 0 to 10, they're not quite at 10. They might be around a 5, 6. In other words, it's not a 1 or a 2, but it's not a 9 or a 10. And her point was, if it's a 5 or a 6, well, maybe she gets along better, even better, with people who are at a 7 or an 8. 
In other words, how much does she enjoy Switzerland? It's not a 10 out of 10, because no place is a 10 out of 10. Obviously, it's not a zero. So it might be five, six, seven, or so on. So when he says, if you're not happy, we can move back, she's not upset enough to want to move back. However, she's pointing out that not everything is perfect. So he really clicked in his mind and said, yeah, you know, I think that is what she's been trying to say. So he went back, had the conversation with her and said, I think what you've been trying to say is there are lots of things you like here. And one of the things that would make you like Switzerland even more was if Swiss people were a bit warmer and a bit more open. And she goes, yes, that's what I've been trying to tell you. So you're not so angry you want to move back. No, I like it here. I just noticed that Swiss people were a bit less warm and open than the people we're used to, but they're really nice people. They're simply, they are warm and open, but it takes a bit more time to get to know it. So that was, you know, a, a big point of tension, Com apparently completely ruined their weekend, where just adjusting things a little bit meant that they could see eye to eye and go, now we understand each other. So for me, framing is understanding the other person, helping them see a slightly different point of view to just realize there's more than one point of view in most circumstances that's valid. And even if we disagree, or we have different, uh, let's say, different preferred points of view, I can see the validity in yours, and you can see the validity in mine. And simply, we have different points of view, which is enriching. Wow. So which what I'm hearing you say is that for us, for anyone for that matter, to be able to frame well, we need to first understand the other person. And now, there are two, three elements to understanding the other person, right? One is my own maturity, my own emotional intelligence of do I want to understand the other person? I think a willingness has to be there first. Don't you think so? I mean, first, you know, because that is something where people will have to do some inner work to kind of move out from being self-centered. And especially when we're talking in the sales context, and when it is with the client, then we have to, one, move out from being self-centered and everything about me, 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 to that, okay, I want to service this person and I want to better understand this person. And I want this person to like me and I want this person to feel comfortable in my presence. So I think, one, it probably starts that willingness that do I want to understand that person? And Second thing is, if I have to understand, then I need to ask the right kind of questions also to the person so that I'm able to understand. Then only I will know how to frame my communication. Then framing is more like a response or is framing also in terms of how I'm going to ask a question, the probing? Yeah, I think so. On, on, on the one hand, like you say, it's about deciding what the main priority is. Is the priority trying to prove that I'm right or trying to get a better outcome for everyone? If it's trying to prove that I'm right, I will be focused on myself and I'll try to, 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 to showcase that my ideas are the best and so on. But the thing is, most people don't like to be told that they're wrong and they don't like, uh, you know, smart people or people who think they're particularly smart and try to prove it because, you know, a lot of us don't like to spend time validating people who, well, maybe lack confidence and so on. And, most people are sort of self-centered. So if we can focus on them, they respond significantly better. Now, I think it's about asking questions and it's also helpful to offer a framework that helps people respond better to questions. So depending on the question we ask, we can condition or precondition the response. 
And quite often I notice people will sort of respond with gut feeling, and then they'll try to explain it, and often they can't make sense of it. So if we can offer a framework that makes a lot of sense, it can help avoid cognitive dissonance, avoid them getting upset, and avoid them getting annoyed. And quite often it's a puzzle. A case in point, I, I recently spoke with some, some people in the United States, and I noticed I created cognitive dissonance because I mentioned, and I won't, I, I, I won't say the, the names, but people can guess, I mentioned that a very famous person is very persuasive. So to me, that's simply factual. It's like saying the person is tall or the person is whatever. The person is persuasive. And their brains melted, and they started arguing, and I couldn't understand because to me it's factual. You can observe, even if you don't like the person, they are persuasive. But what helped was when I said, Another person on the other side of the spectrum, I also find very persuasive. And that's when they understood me saying the person is persuasive doesn't mean I say that I agree with everything they say, which obviously is stupid because, first of all, I don't know everything they've said, so I can't agree with everything. And secondly, I don't agree with everything with everything I say because I keep changing my mind. So the whole the whole framework makes no sense. So you know, it doesn't mean I agree with it or that I support them. It simply means I see they have a skill. And maybe I wish they didn't have the skill. There's, I never even mentioned that. But just framing it as being all different types of people can be persuasive. People I dislike can be persuasive. I can recognize the skill in the same way as if I'm watching Argentina, France in football, and I'm supporting Argentina, I can recognize that Mbappe is a very good player. I Having supported, and sorry for my French friends, having supported Argentina in the recent match, I wish that France hadn't been so good that it was completely nerve-wracking to watch. It was an amazing match, but my goodness, was it nerve-wracking. It would have been much easier to have a France-Brazil from 98 where it was a clear win. However, both teams were incredibly good, and if I don't have a dog in the fight, I don't really mind. But this is also where the framing is, where people think, you have a dog in the fight, so if you say something positive about one thing or another, that's because you want it to be that way. And that's also another frame is the is versus ought. If we want to have a picnic out, if you want to have a picnic outside, and I believe it's going to rain, it doesn't mean I want it to rain. It means I'd like you to be aware of the danger that it might rain so you can make an informed decision. Whereas many people will believe that if I mention the dark skies, uh, the dark clouds in the sky, it means I want your picnic to be ruined by rain, which obviously makes no sense. However, nonetheless, a lot of people get confused by this. If I'm not aware of this, then these misunderstandings will sabotage conversations, just as was the case when I mentioned about the persuasive American president. Like I, I thought these people were about to, I mean, they were verbally attacking me, and I had no idea what was going on until it's like, oh, okay, now I understand. So I can correct it by saying, and on the other side, these people are also ex incredibly persuasive. Yeah. So basically, it's it's a, a responsibility, a personal responsibility that we have to take because how the other person is going to perceive is not in my control. What are they going to understand about the things that I have said is not in my control because Every one of us are coming from different backgrounds, different cultures, different education, different kind of experiences. So there is a high chance that when you are saying that somebody is persuasive and because my experience with that someone is different and negative or 
positive or whatever it is. And so if, if my experience is positive with this person, so when you say persuasive, I'm, I'm taking that word persuasive in a positive way. And then I'm kind of agreeing with you and I'm saying, oh, yes, yes, it's very good and all that stuff. And that's how I am understanding. But if my experience with this person has been very negative, then the minute you are saying persuasive, I am taking it in a negative way. And I'm, I'm feeling that you probably have no idea about what happens here. And you are just coming and being judgmental about, you know, or, or judging this person or giving your opinion and all that stuff, you know. So what I'm learning here is, Fred, that you need to take that personal responsibility that people are from of different maturities and their perceptions are different. And if you do not want to be misunderstood, the point that you said that many often it happens in a client-seller scenario, if you don't want to be misunderstood, then you need to take that responsibility of at least framing your thoughts in a way, knowing that there is a high chance that the other person can misunderstand you. So how do I use the right words in the right sequence so that the other person doesn't misunderstand, right? Yes, that's that's exactly it. I, I'd even go as far to say there's a near certainty that somebody will misunderstand something. Now we have the, the good faith actors who try to avoid it and the bad faith actors who do everything they can to misinterpret everything. With the bad faith actors, we can't do anything because they're, they're trying to sabotage communication. Most people, fortunately, are good faith actors, and it simply probably comes from some, you know, some element of tribalism. Tribalism is, is deeply ingrained in our psyche. And, and like you say, we often feel, you know, if we have two solutions, A and B, both of them obviously have pros and cons. However, people will say, I'm on team A, therefore I will pretend, I will hallucinate that a solution A only has advantages, and then I will say that solution B only has disadvantages, and anyone who is sort of nuanced between the two, I will view as an enemy. So I can either go along and delegate responsibility to people, or I can accept that there's a near certainty they will hallucinate things, and if I want better outcomes for everyone, I'll take my responsibility to do what I can to limit it, such as the framing, both A and B have pros and cons. An example would be, if you can choose between building two factories, factory A employs 100 people but produces 10 units of pollution. Factory B employs 1,000 people but produces 20 units of pollution. Some people will say we have to do factory A because it pollutes half as much. Others will say we should choose factory B because it pollutes twice as much but it employs 10 times more people, so the trade-off is worth it depending on what the units of pollution are. Usually, there's something I picked up actually from a, a master persuader, Scott Adams, who's famous for the Dilbert cartoon. And he pointed out that the, the only people who know how to compare tend to be economists and engineers, and other people just fall into tribalism. And they just pick one side or the other, and then they fight each other. Whereas most of us, can under, the economists and engineers, understand trade-offs. Everything's trade-off. So when we understand that, well, we can discuss the, the benefits and disadvantages of different solutions from different points of view. And that's where the different points of view are helpful, because someone might say, you know, I understand the extra jobs. What about the pollution? Yes, we should take that into account. And we should take the jobs into account. And it's not easy to do that. 
So if we're aware of this, we can simply reduce the risk of getting sabotaged. And I think most of us benefit when, when there's less sabotage. There's so many the sales concepts that are coming into this trade-off aspect. Why in sales we say that find out from the entire aspects that you're dealing with it. What is it that your client is valuing? What is the value to the client? It's it's a that that typical example that we use in negotiations regarding the orange. That when we have an orange and it's a it's a there is there is a negotiation happening between you and me on that orange. Figure out that. What is it that the other person is valuing and what is it that you are valuing? Because there is a high chance in that orange game, we say that one person is actually eyeing the pulp of the orange, whereas the other person who is probably from a cosmetics company is eyeing the peel of the orange. And so there is, if you understand that what is it that the other person is valuing, then you will actually be able to present your thoughts in terms of the value that they are seeking. And that is where I think the trade-off can happen. And one of the aspects, you know, in, in when I speak with the salespeople, I tell them that whenever you're giving a proposal, normally they will say that this is what our proposal is. These are this is one of this is what we can do for you, and this is what the com- commercials are for that and everything. I try and say that you know this understanding of this trade-off. Try and give three options to them of the same thing. The same deal can be done with you in three different ways. And for each of those three different options that you are providing, give the advantage and disadvantage of all the three ways. Give the pros and cons of all the three different ways that this deal can be done with you. And then look at the way, you know, you'll be surprised the way that the success of the deal happening with you is far higher than when you know far higher when you've given them three options and you've given actually the advantage and disadvantage because now you've taken care of all the angles that they need to look at and the the, the decision you're actually helping them make a very logical decision by putting forth all the options that yes like you rightly mentioned that yes there is you know my concern is more on the pollution side so I'm I'm worried more on that part so yes the this but the, the factory A has uh, produces less pollution. But yes, the disadvantage is that it employs also very less number of people. So now when you are negotiating with me or you're talking with me, if my value, if I'm more of a climatist and I'm more of those environmentalists and I, I am I'm more into that and I have that activism in me and I'm more very, very focused on the climate piece, then I will say, yes, fine, they're not employing much, but I think we can live with it and we can we can we'll still go ahead with the climate piece and and probably that will be understandable to to both the parties but if you choose side if you've already come prepared with it in your mind that i have to pitch the factory b only and it's it, it's true i think one of the risks is walking into conversations as a conflict and i don't think that's helpful you know and it could be that if you do the math you realize that there's a factory C you could build that would employ 800 people, but only produce 15 units of pollution. So there's sort of a trade-off. And then you can just go through the different models and understand what the trade-off is. It might also be that if you employ a 1,000 people, you increase, you raise more people out of poverty. Them getting out of poverty means that they will pollute less or they will be able to replace the car or so on. So maybe the overall cost would be different. All of these decisions are incredibly complex. That's why approaching them, just like you said, as as a conversation, makes a lot of sense. 
something I found also when, when it comes to proposals is to lay out clearly the assumptions we're making. So to say, I'm making these assumptions, depending on which things you overweight or underweight, we can get different outcomes. I've given you three examples here based on, and I'm clear about the assumptions and the weighting. Then something I found works beautifully is to say, it's nearly certain that there's going to be something you dislike in these proposals, in all of them. The things you dislike, there are two possibilities. And this is another frame. Either it's something on which I have no flexibility and it might be a deal breaker, so it's a good reason for you to turn it down, or it's something on which I have flexibility, and if I can change it to make it better, I'd love to do so. So would it be okay to share your feedback with me? Because either it's a good reason to just disqualify the project for a valid reason, or it's a way to make the project even better. And if I can do it even better for you, I'd love to make it even better. That's a way to invite the feedback and say, well, obviously, I'm not going to be 100% right. That's normal. So let's turn into a conversation. And that will help me deliver better for you. And I think that's what a big part of sales should be is, I'd like to give you better than, you know, I'm thinking up something, and I'd like to make that even better. And that is going to save the salespeople from getting ghosted by the client. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's imagine, so important. Yes, imagine one biggest pain for a salesperson, that the minute my proposal has gone, suddenly whew, the client vanished. Nowhere to be found. I can't reach them. Yes. And the, 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 the tragic thing is, when the person asks for the proposal, it's always a valid question to ask, are you asking for this because you have a clear idea of what you're looking for? Or are you hoping that by comparing different proposals that are probably going to be incredibly different, that will give you a clear idea? Or have you made up your mind, you're not going to work with me, but you don't know how to say no, and you don't want to be rude, so you make me work on a proposal? You know, here again, framing, we have different possibilities. If they are 100% clear with what they want, but I'm not clear, then I should ask the question before I fill out the proposal, because if I can't do it, I don't want to waste their time. If they're not 100% clear, generally going to compare proposals increases confusion. It doesn't decrease it. Case in point, recently I bought up a stand-up paddle. I thought it would, I, I bought a stand-up paddle to do, you know, paddling on water. I thought it would be straightforward. Are you kidding me? The more time I spent reading it, the more confused I got. And then I finally bought one that I thought was amazing. And then I realized that there was a strange shape. And afterwards I read that actually the different shapes for different things. Fortunately, the one I got was good, but I spent hours and I got so confused because the whole technical side is really not easy to sort through. So if people don't know what they're looking for, get pushing more information to them usually just increases confusion. But more confusion means worse decisions. And I don't want people to make worse decisions. So my goal is to decrease confusion. And I think salespeople should be there to decrease confusion. You know, in the same way, if someone wants to buy a camera, you can, well, actually, I like the example of guitars. Someone walks into a store and says, I'd like to buy an electric guitar. You have the salesperson who will say, well, great. We have a hundred different guitars, a hundred different amplifiers. You have 10,000 combinations. How much time do you have? That's one option. The other option is to say, what kind of music do you like to listen to? And based on that, or do you want to play? Based on that, I'll guide you. 
If you're more of an ACDC fan, I'll guide you to a Gibson SG because that's what Angus Young plays. If you're more into to Guns N' Roses, I'll guide you towards a Les Paul. If you're more into Eric Clapton and Red Hot Chili Peppers or Jimi Hendrix, I'll guide you to a Stratocaster. If you're not into Bruce Springsteen, I'll guide you towards Telecaster because clearly that's what you're looking for. So it, it's a huge time saver. And this is where knowing how to ask the right questions, instead of asking, what do you want? It could be asking what I call the semi-open questions. You know, I'd like to know what you want. Generally, people are looking for A, B, C, or D, but maybe you're looking for something else. So we help people sort of provide an answer, but they wouldn't have been able to give that answer if we hadn't suggested it to them first. This is a masterclass happening again for me. All the all the episodes that I'm going through right now, Fred, every episode is a masterclass happening. And it's kind of making me wonder that should I start charging for these episodes from everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. This is fantastic. But that also, the guitar example also is telling me, and I should ask you this, you, you, you seem to be playing guitar you yourself are a, you know guitarist or something yeah 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 i play guitar i've done it for for too too many decades now it's been a long time since uh, the early 90s so yeah it's been a while wow that's that's why this uh, all these things were coming so easy for you and i'm i'm like okay i know the gibson but what are the other ones okay i need to know google <laughs> <laughs> It's it's it, it it's really interesting because all of this is a rabbit hole, and there are plenty of things I'm still discovering about guitars I had no idea about. But it's uh, it's interesting to see how you you understand the Gibson Les Paul, and then I started seeing. I, I think I did something on LinkedIn where two people are talking about a Gibson Les Paul, and the guy says, "Well, obviously these these are the pickups are four ninety eight now because yeah, obviously." I had no idea. To me, it was humbucker pickups. I didn't know about the different models. But of course, you got the connoisseurs. You know, you don't want a four ninety. You want a four ninety eight, not a four ninety three, because the sound is totally different. I'm lost. I, and the thing is, at one point, I don't care. But this is also about calibrating to other people's level of knowledge. It's easy for salespeople to nerd out into the details they love because they know it. Part of that is to show how smart they are. It sort of goes back to what we said before. We want to show how smart we are. So, but if the person isn't nerding out with us, we're just infusing them and probably annoying them. So that's not the best. Uh, it's not the best solution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that is where again, probably one. Of course, at least if you can't have something common. For example, if somebody comes and meets you, a private banker comes and meets you to pitch to you, maybe they don't have that knowledge in guitar. Probably they won't be able to talk to you on that common subject. But at least there is another common subject, which is banking which is wealth, which is money, which is about growing that. And, and when you've got an appointment with a customer like that, who is interested in money and at least know about your industry, then do not say that I only know only about the products I have with me and I don't know what's happening in the industry. That's not a good credibility to, to, to build for yourself, you know, because do that much study so that you are if you are in one particular industry and if you're working in that industry, don't be so limited to only your product that you don't even know what's happening around the world. And that kind of makes me think, what's happening in the world of private wealth? Because with, with everything, with the globalization, with so much of access, like for example, in India now, earlier we were restricted to the Indian funds and we could invest only in Indian, you know, all, all the Indian investment certificates that we have got here. Suddenly now we start seeing that a lot of like 
a lot of these real estate investments have started coming in for for the for the HNI, the high net worth individuals and everyone invest in, and especially the Middle East countries and then Europe. There's a lot of these cross-border investments that has opened up now for us. So for wealth managers, this is a good country. So all the wealth managers now in India, at least, they are, it's, it's a good place to be because there are a lot of options for them to take it to their clients, you know. But what's the global scenario like? I mean, how are the clients? So let's first talk about the clients, the the people whom the wealth managers go and target. What are their expectations? What are what is it? Has their behavior, purchase behavior, kind of changed? Especially because we're not so digitalized, and there's so much that is happening online. Everybody is online right now. The click of a button, I can do a lot of investments, and uh, so is is. Do they need a sales manager, to salesperson? Are they looking for someone to teach them something, tell them something? What's the knowledge level? What's the purchasing behavior like now for the customers? So it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. First of all, with the markets, because the markets have changed a lot recently, there's now a, a very high risk-free rate of about 5%, which means that you know a lot of people say, I'm just happy to put my money in bonds. You know, If I can get 5% per year, that's good enough for me. You know, fine, maybe maybe that's the right thing. But what we've observed, like you say, there's a lot that's online, including information. And compared to 30 years ago, where most people didn't have access to information, it's easy to get a lot of information about markets, about, about funds, about ETFs. The question is, with too much information, how do we sort through it? And that is where there's a huge challenge. And, you know, let's face, let's face reality, one of the reasons why finance pays well is because it's mind-numbingly boring, a lot of it. Most people wouldn't be, let's say, fund analysts in their spare time as a hobby. You know, I know people who play, well, play, they play guitar in the spare time on the weekend. They do gardening. I don't know anyone who run, who reads through fund investment brochures just because they think it's fun. They're, they'll build model trains or model airplanes, but they won't get into fund management. So because it's boring, people have to be paid to do it, and they usually get paid you know, reasonably well to do it. But most people don't have an intrinsic passion for this. So the two possibilities, either they force themselves to do it in order to save money, or they compensate someone else to do it for them so they can save time and they can, they, and they can delegate. And aside from the amount of time it takes, uh, there's also the focus, there's the interest. And then we can always just wonder, you know, if, if you have enough money to be able to hire a private banker, so it's, you know, one million plus in, in US dollars, do you really want to be trying to save a bit of time, uh, save a bit of money by spending more time? You know, let, let's say someone has a million, they pay 10% or the 1%, so 10,000, it's basically less than, than a thousand a month. So it's about 250 per weekend. You know, would someone really be willing to spend, to, to, to save or to, spend all of their Saturdays reading up about finance to save $250. If that's the case, well, maybe they should just, you know, invoice the time a bit more and try to get a bit more money to, to pay someone else to do it. So, you know, that that's one thing. Then the other thing is there's so much information in so many parts of the world. Like you say, some markets open up. It's difficult enough to follow the domestic market and it's very difficult to follow foreign markets. Now, there's one one bias that a lot of investors have, which is 
I'm not sure what the term is, but I call it something like the proximity bias, which is most Swiss investors will have an overweight allocation to Switzerland because they know Switzerland. Most Indian investors will have an overweight allocation to India. Most British investors have an overweight allocation to Britain. Most Finnish investors have, will have an overweight allocation to, uh, to Finland. Why, why is it that investors from Zimbabwe usually don't have an overweight allocation to Zimbabwe? They try to not have an allocation to Zimbabwe. You know, And if we can think of things from an international perspective, without the biases, without our own preferences, do we make better decisions? Usually we do. There's no reason why a Swiss person should have an overweight to Switzerland. It's just because they know Nestle a little bit better, maybe. But with Credit Suisse, that didn't really work out. You know, so it feels less scary because it's closer and it makes no sense. This is where working with a professional makes a lot more sense. So it's to, to avoid biases, to cut through the noise and to save time. And then, yeah, when it comes to, to, to possibilities, there are many possibilities. The thing is, it's really difficult to compare, let's say, an investment or investments in Dubai that we might know quite well because we go there. But what do we know about European small and mid-cap equities? Most people don't know very much. But should the allocation to European small and mid-cap equities be exactly 0.0% of the portfolio? Maybe it's too little. But what about Asian small and mid-cap equities? Maybe 0.0% is too little. But if we have one fund, do we need another fund to diversify? Should we have ETFs? Should we have active funds? Or should we balance the two? All of this is complex. And some people might find it's a hobby, but most people, I think, prefer golfing and fishing and cooking and doing, doing other fun things like that. So do you then recommend, because while I was listening to you, I was, of course, it occurred to me that as customers, we may think we're very smart and we have a lot of knowledge because we're discussing this. And it's our money. End of the day, we do keep track of our money. And, and with the virtue of having a private banker for, my, for ourselves, and because we are, we're talking on a regular basis with our private bankers, we've kind of understood the lingo and we've understood the kind of analysis and, and the kind of things that happen. So like they say, you know, little knowledge and 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 thinking that you know I'll, i know everything so it's possible we we are we are customers we we think we are king queens and the rulers of the of the entire kingdom so there's a high possibility that as customers most of us probably are going through this misconception that we kind of understand how the market of investment works so how much of that then the seller's responsibility is to regularly educate people like like you know when you're talking about this the the kind of examples that you gave about where the complications may arise and where i may end up wasting a lot of time and and i probably will get a lot of half-baked information because i am not an expert on that and even if i read online and i i'm probably reading the most credible site i'm reading it on the most credible site and Everybody talks about it and swears on it and says that, oh, this is the site that you will get for your all your investment advice. And even that, whatever they say, buy this, sell that, I may not fully understand. Still, I'm depending on certain sites to be telling me something. So how much of then the, and now I'm going to, the non-financial services part, that is, not just focusing on getting a client and selling to them, but also the other aspects 
of the, which is like educating the client, taking them through some awareness programs, sending them some kind of those educational newsletters or, or, or bringing them to some kind of a conclave where they are given at least those who are very interested and those who have a lot of interest in growing their, in their wealth and the growth of their wealth. And they want to know about it, giving them those kind of, how much of those, those things are advisable to be done by the, by the financial services, the institutions. I think it it depends to what extent the, the institutions or the bankers want to have headaches down the road or not. And to what extent they want the people to have good experiences or not. I'd suggest that a bit like if you go to a dentist, if if I'm a dentist and you come to see me and we need to do something, it's my responsibility to minimize your pain. And that's it. If you feel like I'm not doing enough, you'll probably find another dentist. So when when it comes to to the the, the information, I'd start with a presupposition that most people don't understand what's happening. I always remember that happiness equals reality minus expectations. So if the expectations are bigger than reality, people will be very unhappy. It's my responsibility to help people have a good grasp of what reality is. So if people say, I want low volatility, 10% returns per annum, the only way to get that is in a scam. And if people believe that scams are possible, that's exactly what Madoff did. 10% returns, 3% volatility. When you look at the performance numbers, and I've seen them, you can see that something is massively off. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's completely wrong. It doesn't make sense. However, many sophisticated people fell for it because, you know, reasons, and they wanted to believe it. So when it comes to the education, it's my responsibility to calibrate it to the right point even if people say, I don't want too many details, I want to make sure they're making informed decisions as opposed to ill-informed decisions. And also, so if I'm if I'm a banker, that they understand a lot of people are happy to lie to them and deceive them and deceive them either explicitly or implicitly, either by saying lies or letting them believe lies. So there's the, you know, d- different ways of lying, but one of them is to not correct something that's not true. And this is one of the issues. A number of salespeople focus on the outcome. In other words, I want your money. And the level of diagnostic they do is basically, do you have a pulse? Are you still breathing? And do you have enough money for me? If so, (laughs) of course I can help you. And that to me doesn't make sense because it's being dishonest. That's not a diagnostic. A real diagnostic would be something along the lines of, you currently are working with a bank. How come you're talking to me? Either you're proactively looking for a new bank or you're not closed to the possibility of working with a new bank or maybe you're just being polite and you are closed. If you're not closed, why not? If you're not closed, well, it means maybe you're you're not closed to better. So do you know what better looks like or not? If you don't know what it looks like, how about we find out? I can't pitch to you until I understand if I can offer you anything. So I need to start by offering you something. Otherwise, I just talk at you, hoping you like something, but I won't even know what you're liking. And maybe you pick me because of a misunderstanding. That's not great. So this is where, to me, it's the salesperson's responsibility to make sure you don't have misunderstandings. Because otherwise, imagine you sell a nice room in a hotel and the client calls and says, I don't understand. We don't have the private suite with a private swimming pool. You go, 
We never said there was a private swimming pool, but I believe there was. I told you I thought there would be. I'm furious. I'm going to leave you one star review on, you know, Google or TripAdvisor. Well, that's in nobody's best interest. The person's upset. They're being obnoxious. All of this could have been avoided. So it's up to me to figure out what are they thinking? What are the expectations? How do we match this with reality? And how this something keeps coming to mind to me is how do we make sure there are no surprises? There shouldn't be amazingly good surprises or amazingly bad surprises. If a portfolio should deliver between, let's say, minus two and plus eight percent per year, if it's delivering 50% in one year, there's a big problem. Something happened. It could be there's a big exposure to NVIDIA. But if you're between minus two and plus eight percent, you shouldn't be getting 50% in one year. That is not normal. Something is wrong. And if it goes up too much, it could go down too much. We don't want that. That's what the crypto thing does. People say, yeah, but the upside is great. Yeah, but you can also lose 90% within a few weeks or a few days on the off chance. You, you don't know. If you're comfortable with that, fine. But if I'm trying to sell you some crypto because maybe there's a thing and you end up losing a lot of money and you're upset with me, I let you down. And me letting you down is not an option. It's not good. I wouldn't sleep well at night. You'd be right to be upset. And why would I let someone down if I can have a sustainable business model that really helps them? I might as well focus on what actually helps rather than try to mislead because I, it's very selfish. Misleading people doesn't feel good. What you're also suggesting, Fred, now is that you should be ethical. Absolutely. Being ethical is, well, the alternative is being unethical. Being unethical involves lying and deceiving. If we need to lie and deceive to have a business, a business model that works, we have a relevance problem. It's either a relevance problem or a competence problem or an ethics problem. If it's an ethics problem, we need to stop and examine our conscious mind and decide what kind of life we want. If we're irrelevant, we need to think a little bit more. And if we're incompetent, then we need to, 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 to develop the competence. But if we can sell something ethically and competently and it works, life's amazing. That's the, I think of the, um, I forget his name, like the, the top chefs, the guy at Noma, he goes, I tell you what, I'm not cheap. You know what you get and people like it. I wrote about a Jiro, the sushi chef in Japan. Sushi, sushi chef, yes, yes. Yeah, who's yeah. amazing. You know what you get. It's sushi, it's fish on rice. It's the best rice you've had and the best fish you've had. Yes, I'm not cheap and you know what you get. And people walk out of there and they say, thank you, that meal was amazing. Okay, that's a much better way to live life than to try to sneak things, cut corners, have people not be very happy. And why let them down if we have an alternative? I, to me, it makes no sense. Maybe there is an alternative, but then we should work on the relevance. You know, first of all, the, you know, the relevance and then the competence and then, of course, the ethics. If somebody's sneaking me dodgy fish in the sushi, I'm going to be sick. I don't want that. And why would anyone be unethical if they have a choice, unless they, they like it, but then they're completely disqualified? So the ethics is, you know, if we're tempted to be unethical, there's a problem somewhere. It could be bad management above. It could be we haven't figured out how to develop a sustainable business plan, but there's a bigger problem we need to solve. And to pass on the unethical behavior to, to, to pollute somebody else's life, it's, why, why do that? You know, we might as well just resign and go and flip burgers, at least, you know, honest burgers and, or make coffee at Starbucks. At least it's honest. At least we sleep well. We're not scamming people. So, yeah. I think that's a, that's a great point you mentioned that if there is a practice of, you know, or, or 
habit of unethical practices happening among the salespeople. And if it is a common thing among all, so one or two, we can still understand that, you know, they're driven by a very different inner self that they're, they're getting all unethical. But if most of your staff is getting unethical, most of the salespeople are working in a way most unethical, then it definitely questions the organization's system and the values and the cultures that we are running. And they probably do not have a sustainable business because of which the salespeople are probably forced to apply unethical practices. And that's alarming. That's alarming. It, it's completely alarming. I'm reminded of the work of Paul Ekman, the psychologist who worked on microexpressions and deception and lies. And you, I keep forgetting which one it is, but you remember the 1986, was it Challenger, NASA spaceship that exploded? Do you know what happened there? So the story was they postponed two launches and the head of NASA said, I don't want any excuses. We're not going to postpone the next one. And this engineer noticed that the temperature would be too low. There was a risk that one of the, the rubber things wouldn't be working properly. He told his manager, said, we have to escalate this. This is a problem. And the manager said, you heard what the boss said. No excuses. It'll be fine. As a result, 37 years later, we're still talking about the people who died, including the school teacher. I remember I was at school and we found out the school teacher died and we saw the explosion. And all of that because the head of NASA basically said, lie to me. I don't care what reality is. I want you to lie. Now, the thing is, if you have an organization that is based on deceit, you know that it's not just with the sales. Deceit is everywhere. And if you try to build an organization based on deceit, it cannot be sustainable. At one point, it will explode. Probably people are scamming money away from you, like the staff are trying to steal money from you also, because it, it doesn't go one way. The, the dishonesty, it goes everywhere. You're losing the best elements you can afford to get away. The other ones are are basically conning you. So there's there's no advantage to have a culture of deceit. One of the, the most successful funds in the world is uh, Bridgewater that was created by Ray Dalio. And he has a culture of absolute transparency and honesty. So if you think someone is bad, who just say, I think you're bad at this. From zero to 10, I give you a two. And this is what you need to develop to a three or four. They don't tolerate liars. And this is a big thing. Someone, If someone lies, usually it's either for gain or protection, either for themselves or for others. Often we lie in organizations where we don't trust the organization because we believe it's corrupt. And usually if we're lying, either we walk in with our own worldview that is corrupted or the organization actually is corrupt. If it's corrupted, well, you know, that's a bit like saying, I'm going to sail a boat, but I don't trust it. You know, at one point it's probably going to sink. Well, who wants to be there if you have the choice? And if you believe you don't have a choice, then, you know, there are other things to examine. But I, I'd rather be part of an organization or invest in an organization that believes in truth and honesty and values and can really demonstrate added value. Case in point, I just read recently a book about the German company why, why, I think it was Wisecard. And it was about this massive company that was based upon lies and completely exploded. That was one case. Then there was some, some other company. Elizabeth Holmes' case was also similar. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we got all of these celebrity cases. Elizabeth Holmes, the, the whole thing was ludicrous, made no sense. Made no sense that the fact that we had this, you know, young genius, whatever, 
as a Hollywood movie, it would make no sense. But we, everyone wanted to believe in it. But it made no sense. And the whole thing was a complete scam. And she got so much of funding also. Imagine that how it's easy to believe such lies and um, deceit. And, and, and it kind of definitely questions the, I don't know, the, the, probably the, the, the due diligence that even these people follow when they are giving <laughs> the funding. On, on what basis was that funding given? You know, it's the same thing with, uh, with Madoff. How is it possible that finance professionals didn't see through his thing? How is it possible that the whole bunch of other funds that, I remember one fund, I actually know the person who pretty much shut them down because he realized that the auditor was the manager's brother-in-law. And he just said, I just need to see the, the stuff. And they didn't have, the, the, I mean, the whole thing was, was in shambles. The whole thing was basically a scam and they, they ended up shutting down. What's the name? Weavering, I think. That the, you know, many scammers out there. Look at FTX. There's Patrick Boyle. He's a Irish YouTuber and finance expert. He's been doing like very funny, tongue-in-cheek videos on these topics. And he was speaking about FTX. The whole thing is ludicrous. The whole thing is crazy. And then you've got other organizations there that are being shut down left, right, and center because they just swindled away the money. So this is not uncommon. But one of the one of the main things is if an organization tolerates lies or encourages lies, it's a good sign to get out because it's not going to be fun. And there are enough good organizations out there with values who understand they actually offer something of benefit to the clients that we just have to find those. And they've got good managers, good you know directors, good, a good board, good CEOs, good values. They actually want to help people figure out how to help people build a sustainable model and, you know, give people decent working conditions, help people grow, make sure everyone's sort of getting by okay. There are enough of them. So why, why put up with the dishonest ones? Makes no sense. Absolutely makes no sense. And I think this has been a brilliant, brilliant discussion with you, Fred. You are really turning into that wise man that people can come to for advice. And uh, you, you, there's so much of, so much of wisdom, so much of knowledge, and so much of maturity. I think that is the word that I, I feel for you. You know, this, this, this amazing maturity that with which you talk and you're speaking. And I think, yes, uh, working ethically is, I don't think there is any other option. And people shouldn't have that. It, there shouldn't be two thoughts about it that should I or should I not? It is how it is. And and all the sellers out there should know that all the examples of this deceit and lies and businesses that have happened, as Fred mentioned, these are not uncommon. They're very common. And so it's very natural that your client may also be looking at you with skepticism because they do not know whether you are there working. You may be saying that I'm ethical, but it would it would be hard to believe considering the kind of examples that have been floating around. So it's not something that you say I am ethical. You show you are ethical. Yeah, I know that that's so important. It's just the same as movies. Show, don't tell. I remember someone was talking about one of the, I think it was DC movies where you have the voiceover saying that Harley Quinn, the Joker's girlfriend, is fearless and even more crazy than he is. And in the next scene, the Joker's driving around and she's screaming, stop, this is scary. And you go, it doesn't add up. 
And you're right, you know, if you tell someone I'm ethical, that's usually a sign that you probably aren't. Because otherwise, why would you say it? However, one of the things, you know, if somebody asks, why can you help you? Just say the truth. I don't know if I can help you. I don't know your situation. I don't know. I do not know. But we can find out. All of a sudden, the willingness to not lie and find out, that starts building trust. We we show trust in the process. Let's find out. If you believe I can't help you, would it be okay to tell me? Because maybe I can't help you. That's fine. But if I can help you and there's, an, and there's a misunderstanding and I don't help you, I'd feel terrible. So, you know, would that be all right? Just address the elephant in the room. This is the using a lot of reverse psychology and it's sort of, the, instead of the push sales tactics, it's let's just turn into a conversation. I don't know if I can help you. If it turns out I can't help you, are we both okay saying no? But if I can, well, let, let's just see. And you, there probably will be things you don't like which might be a good reason to not work together. But if it's a misunderstanding, I'd be happy to dispel the misunderstanding. And all of a sudden, it's just so much easier. And everything I just said is absolutely true. I don't know if I can help you because I don't know you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fred. This has been a wonderful discussion with you. And I think the two key takeaways that are that are from this discussion is one, have a personal responsibility so that you are able to frame your thoughts in a way that it, it is it is able to help avoid any kind of misunderstanding with your clients. And second, have a personal integrity so that no matter what your organization is or whichever situation there is, you should feel responsible for your behavior and you should feel that you need to be ethical no matter what. And you should feel responsible for the client and for the business and the growth and that you are promising, you should at least be, feel responsible that it's me who is promising. And I would not like my reputation to go down the docks or my credibility to go down the docks just because I wasn't ethically being able to fulfill my commitment or turned out that I lied. So keep these aspects in mind. I hope that you had great time listening into this wise man's advice. I, I really... Uh, he, he should be called as the wise man, Yoda, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but thank you so much, Fred. Thank you for giving us such a valuable time of yours and sharing sharing all your knowledge so generously. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you to all of you who are listening and who have been tuned into this uh, podcast. Take care. God bless. And we'll meet again. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap on today's episode of Sellers Lounge. A huge thank you to our guests and of course, all of you sales champions out there who tuned into this episode. If you found value in today's conversation, make sure to follow the podcast and share it with your sales buddies. Please also leave a review sharing what you like about this podcast. And if you want to take your sales game to the next level, head to my website, thesuccessvitamin.com to get loads of exclusive content and courses. This is your host, Pratha Dube, signing off with a reminder that if you are not selling, you are not winning. See you next week.